In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Amen. All right, so um, the this new hymn of the month, From God the Father, Virgin Born, it's an epiphany hymn. We're in the season of epiphany now. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of be in the season of epiphany for the next three weeks. And epiphany has three kind of major feasts that uh, go with it. So the first is the visit of the Magi, the visit of the wise men, which we'll talk about today on the Feast of Epiphany. And then next week will be the baptism of the, our Lord. And then the week following, and normally there's some Sundays in between, but Easter's really early this year, so they're all back-to-back. On The week after that will be Transfiguration, uh, which is the kind of bookend to Epiphany. So um, this is an Epiphany hymn, and uh, it's I think it's a pretty simple tune. I don't know how familiar you all are with it. But um, let me sing part of it, and then you see if you're familiar with it, and then we can just sing a couple of the stanzas. From God the Father, virgin born, to us the only Son came down, by death the font to consecrate, the faithful to regenerate. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not yeah, a couple yes, a couple no's. Okay. Okay. Um, so let's do that one again. We'll do. We'll just do. Um, let's do the odds. We'll do one, three, and five. One, three, and five. Alright. From God the Father, virgin born, to us the only Son came down. By death the font to consecrate the faithful to regenerate. Glide on, O glorious Son, and bring the gift of healing on your wing. To every toll and cloud it sends the clearness of your light dispense. Lord, once you came to earth's domain, and we believe shall come again. Be with us on the battlefield, from every harm your people shield. See how much easier that got after just three stanzas? It's really not a 
the the hardest part about that tune is that jump from the B flat in that first line all the way up to the uh, B flat in the right after that. So it's a whole octave jump there. Um, so you you gotta you just gotta be on the lookout for that. But other than that, it's a it's a pretty simple tune. So we'll we'll learn it together over the next next month. Um, this is a, it's a really old hymn, by the way. It's from like I want to say like the I have to double check, but um, I want to say from like the four or five hundreds. It's like a very old Latin hymn, so um, pretty pretty good stuff. All right, let's uh, continue with the catechism memory work and Bible memory work. So this is from the Table of Duties of Citizens. We'll go straight into the Bible memory work. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have great me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul in all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. Um, I want to say it's like from the 400s or 500s. I just have to double check. I don't don't quote me on it yet. Um, I'll have to look at a hymnal and see. All right, let's uh, just jump back into Ezekiel. Try and finish up a few of these key passages here. So last week we did um, 11, which also tied together with 36 and 37. So we're kind of jumped around a little bit. Uh, but this, uh, I don't know exactly how much of this I'm going to actually cover, but um, we're going to start in chapter 16. And focusing around verses 1 to 43, although we might not cover all of that. Um, so this is in the uh, section of the, the outline on the judgment on Israel. right? So we have looked at uh, Ezekiel's call and then Ezekiel enacting the word among the people right? and his... Um, Whenever he had to lay on his side and and cook his his food over over dung, if you remember that, and then the uh, we looked at an initial um, judgment on Israel when the glory left the temple, 
And then in chapter 11, and then also parallel in 36 and 37, we looked at hope for Israel. Well, this is the other major section, part of the other major section in uh, chapters. This is really from a bigger section, chapters 12 through 24. Of course, we don't have time to read all of that. On judgment on Israel. And after this, we'll look at judgment on the nations. But I want to look at the way that Ezekiel describes, or the Lord in a vision to Ezekiel describes the people of Israel um, and what they've done wrong. And the reason I want to look here is because it's a very uh, descriptive way of describing it. That's kind of oxymoronic, but it's a very um, imaginative way of describing it, um, as is normal for Ezekiel, right? So we've talked about in Ezekiel, he's very picturesque, he's very uh, dramatic, right? And this chapter 16 is no different. So I'm going to start reading here. The word of the Lord came to me again, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. You are to say, this is what the Lord says to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hethite. As for your birth, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day you were born and you weren't washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one cared enough about you to do even one of these things out of compassion to you. But you were thrown out into the open field because you were despised on the day you were born. Okay, so he's describing Israel here like a person, right? And not just a person, but um, right now describing the birth of this person. And what he says there is um, basically to start out with, you weren't anything special. Right, so this is something to, to if you go back into the history of Israel, back to Abraham and and his line, um, they did kind of come out of nowhere, right? So Abraham is uh, wandering around, and um, where where is he wandering around at? Up north uh, from the the area. Um, is it Ur? Yeah. Yeah, Ur of the Chaldeans. Yeah, that's right. Um, which is interesting, by the way, because that's actually back where um, Ezekiel is now, is in the land of the Chaldeans, in the land of the Babylonians, right? But uh, Abram's wandering around up among, you know, basically pagan land, and he gets chosen. And then the promise of the, this this land among the Canaanites is established. And then you can go back and read through the history of Genesis and, and Exodus and uh, Judges and all of this to see how all this was preserved for these people. But God basically did this out of nowhere, right? He chose this one family to make this nation out of. And um, he says here, and he says this many other times, many different ways throughout the Bible, it's not that Israel was anything special, right? It's not that these... Uh, People descended from Abraham, descended from Jacob, of the 12 tribes, were anything really that special. Um, in fact, they were kind of the opposite, right? They were very common people, and they seemed to be very, almost by nature, in the Old Testament, uh, rebellious people, right? Hard-hearted and stiff-necked people. God 
uh, says this over and over again about them, right? And in some ways that continues into the New Testament. You can see how Paul um, talks about his fellow Jews in Romans 9 to 11, for instance. So they're um, kind of stubborn and rebellious people. And the Lord says, look, whatever I kind of chose you out of nowhere and no one cared about you, right? Um, Let let me uh, keep reading here. So verse 6, I passed by you and saw you thrashing around in your blood. And I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. I made you thrive like plants of the field. You grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Um, and we'll get into the analogy is going to change here in the next verse. Yeah, Gary? Well, how do they compare to somebody like Melchizedek? You know, he kind of came out of nowhere. You know, nobody even really knew anything much about him. I don't know if they Yeah, that's a, that's a whole other aspect of the Old Testament world is um, – I've been convinced of this going through the book of Genesis on Thursday mornings at the Bible study I do down in Oxford, is that there were probably plenty of faithful Christians around um, the the ancient world in the world of the Old Testament. I think sometimes there's this mistake when we teach the Bible that – we kind of because the Old Testament is concerned primarily with the people of Israel as a whole, because it's concerned about one thing, which is the coming of Jesus Christ and where does he come from. But if you read through the history of Bible history in Genesis, what you find is that basically everyone has an opportunity to know the gospel. Right? So let's um so obviously all the descendants of Ad, the direct descendants of Adam would have known the gospel. And then they get to the, as they're spreading out they get to Babel. And they become prideful. Um, but in theory they all there I mean they're trying to get to heaven, right? They and they know uh, who the god is and then they get spread out and in theory all those people would have known the gospel. And as people spread out, there are there are generations and people who reject the gospel, right, um, and who seem to not know it anymore. There are people who just wholeheartedly accept paganism. But then you get to the flood, right? Oh, I guess the, the flood's before Babel, isn't it? Anyhow, same same idea, though. You get to the flood, and all the all the sons of Noah knew the gospel. Right, and they all spread out across the the world, and and then you get to like um, another story like that would be with Abraham, right? If um, this is something that I think is often mis- mistaken, is when you read about Ishmael in in Genesis, he sounds almost like a Christian. I mean, I don't know, I don't think Genesis is super clear on Ishmael's faith per se. But he's given what almost sounds like the messianic promise in a couple places. Um, he's obviously not the one, right? That's that's supposed to be Isaac. But he's given these promises of 
protection of God and and that God's going to be with him. Now, his descendants clearly reject that. But they had the opportunity, right? So anyway, my point about Melchizedek is that, um, or is that around Genesis uh, 12 or, or 13 or wherever that is, um, it's not surprising to me that there seems to be other Christians throughout the land. Another thing you get like is uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro of Midian. Like he's a priest of Midian, and he seems to be a basically a Christian priest. Right? It's like, where did he come from? Well, I think there are, it, it's not that there weren't other uh, faithful Christian or Job. Job probably lived during the time of Genesis. And, and he obviously knows the Lord, right? And he seems to not be um, in the area of you know Jerusalem and whatnot. So I could go on and on. But the point is, that when we think about the Old Testament, we should be careful not to think about it like that there's only the people of Israel are Christians, everyone else in the world is damned, and that then you get to the New Testament and now everyone has the chance to be saved. The Gentile mission was always in view in the Old Testament. God constantly brings Gentiles into the covenant in the Old Testament. And... On top of that, there are Gentiles who are already part of the covenant, I think, in the Old Testament. They're just not the focus of the story. Because the point of the covenant is to bring about Jesus. So, anyway, that's that's my that's my take on that. Well, it is the, the part of the point is that no one does know exactly where he came from. Yeah. But my point is that's not surprising that he's a Christian priest, that no one knows where he came from. Yeah. But um, Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is a priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, um, because he's not uh, corrupted like, like Aaron's line of priest was. So... Um, Yeah, another good question is like, um, so, uh, never mind, I'm just going to turn that into a Genesis Bible study if I keep going. I, I mean, I, I love that kind of question, but i got to stick to Ezekiel here. All right. Um, so, so what the Lord says here about Israel as a child is like, look, you weren't anything special. I made you. Something special. He says, I saw you and you were about to die. You were thrashing around in your own blood. And there's probably a couple of different ways we could take that looking back on different stories in the Old Testament. But one that comes to mind for me is just speaking of Abraham is like the uh, when it looked like Abraham wasn't going to have a child. Right. When they were old and advanced in years. And it was like they're about to die. And this child of the covenant hasn't come yet, right? But the Lord says, I, I saw you and I cared enough about you uh, to, to clean you up, right? Um, 
he says he picture and notice the dr- dramatic nature of this image right it says baby um, whose umbilical cord hasn't been cut off who hasn't been cleaned or washed and who's thrashing around in its own blood about about to die right this abandoned baby and the Lord says I saw you and I came and um, now the analogy changes and he says I, I said to you live and then you grew up like the plants of the field, and you thrive. And now Israel's going to turn into this beautiful woman. Okay, so this is now the image. You grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were stark naked. Then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Okay, so um, this is going back to the Garden of Eden, right? That that the Lord covers the shame of of nakedness for his people. And um, he's driving, the reason he pictures her, this Israel as a woman here is because he's going to, um, well, you'll see where it goes. Okay. So he covered her. I pledge myself to you and entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord God, and you became mine. Okay, so what he just said there is that I married you, right? I entered into, the, uh, the, this is the language of covenant, is marriage. And um, he, uh, what did he say there? I pledged myself to you, right? So he made wedding vows to Israel. And I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, and anointed you with oil. That's all very baptismal. There And um, you can notice how in Ephesians 5, Paul uses that same language of sanctification and baptism in connection to marriage between Christ and his church, right? That he washed her and made her clean. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and provided you with fine leather sandals. I also wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with jewelry, putting bracelets on your wrist. And a necklace around your neck. This is this all sounds like Song of Solomon, right? I put a ring in your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned. Okay, so he goes on and on talking about, and it's a uh, all very royal language as well, right? That he's making her kind of his queen. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord your God. All right, now here's where we get the description of how everything went wrong. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and acted like a prostitute because of your fame. You lavished your sexual favors on everyone who passed by. Your beauty became his. You took some of your clothing and made colorful high places for yourself, and you engaged in prostitution on them. These places should not have been built, and this should never have happened. You also took beautiful jewelry made from the gold and silver I'd given you, and you made male images so that you could engage in prostitution with them. Okay, um, so this is the R-rated part of the the class here. But um, what he's saying here is that when Israel committed idolatry, right, idolatry, this is a common theme throughout the prophets. We already saw this in Hosea. That equaled them committing adultery. Because 
they Israel had entered into a marriage covenant with the Lord. And so to go and worship the false gods of the pagan nations, that, so um, to kind of continue the analogy here, anytime they walked among a pagan nation, they started to worship their gods, right? And he says these places should have never been built. He's talking about the the high places, right, where they worship the Asherah and the Ashtaroth and the Bells, right? These places should have never been built, these places where you went and committed, as he says, prostitution there, right? And he says, you took the gold and silver jewelry which I gave you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gold and silver in the temple, right, which they sold to the pagan nations and and which they used, um, or you can even go all the way back to like Aaron and the golden calf, right? They took their gold and silver and, and made and made this golden calf to worship. Um, and you made, and he says, male images so that you could engage in prostitution with them, right? And here you can see how the nature of marriage and the nature of um, the first commandment again go together is that marriage is designed to be between one man and one woman, right? And our relationship with God is designed between one people and one God, Right, it's not supposed to be this polytheistic. Um, we worship, you know, whatever gods we feel like. And this was the one of the big problems in the Old Testament. It wasn't necessarily that they were like, you know, today. Um, I think a lot of people would be more kind of atheistic or more and antagonistic toward the Christian God. They'd say, you know, I don't believe in your God. Science disproves your God. Uh, your God, you know, hates people. Uh, you know, whatever the case may be. But um, people in the Old Testament are like, yeah, Yahweh's fine, but I just like also have all these other gods that I worship, right? That was the problem. And um, what he has to say here is that, no, you were supposed to be mine alone, right? I gave you the gold. I gave you your, your clothes, right? I clothed you with righteousness, All right. Um, verse 20 gets uh, very intense. You even took your sons and daughters you bore to me and sacrificed them to these images as food. Wasn't your prostitution enough? You slaughtered my children and gave them up when you passed them through the fire to the images. In all your detestable practices and acts of prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were stark naked and thrashing around in your blood, right? So he brings up the child sacrifice, which is maybe the most detestable practice that they participated in, and and said, "Look, wasn't it enough that you cheated on me? Now you took the kids that we had, right? Um, because these were children of the covenant, and you sacrificed them on these altars as food, and." Um, yeah, it's it's a very harsh, harsh law that Ezekiel speaks here. Okay, so uh, anyway, I'll probably leave that passage there. But any questions on that or or comments? I thought it was interesting that God put a, a nose ring in Israel. You know. Yeah. And, and today, you know, I, I don't. It's my opinion. Right. Yeah, I um, you can see how like the 
some of the adornments that go along with royalty and with um, they, you know, husbands give wives and things. Some of these things are cultural, right? I think there are, there's certain things that are. This brings up a whole discussion of what's cultural and what's not, as far as um, what the Bible describes about the differences between men and women and how men and women dress and present themselves. And I think there are things that are there are principles that are not purely cultural. There are principles that are given by God, right? So like women should be modest, right? Um, and uh, and and men should strive to be strong and things like that. But there are other things like nose rings that that change over time. So, but Song of Solomon is very interesting if you go and read in there and see kind of how the most intense description of how a husband adores her wife or his wife um, looks. There's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. You know, one thing I heard a couple days ago on the radio, I don't know if it's true or not, but they said that they said that in this last year in twenty three, we had more people crossing the border than women having babies in the United States. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know that I don't, I I don't want to get you know too political or whatever, but um, there's all these doomsday type prophecies in the news about overpopulation, and um, if you look at some of the the science and things that I I'm very skeptical of of that, but um, what you can see throughout history and empires and um, whatnot and nations is that when they value life from the time of childbirth to the time of natural death, and when life is encouraged, new life is encouraged, right? families are encouraged to grow, then things tend to go better, right? Um, and that's that's simply because that's the way God designed the world to work, right? The, the family is the base unit of society, right? When Adam um, and Eve have their children, Adam is first and foremost a husband and a father. But in his case, he also gets to be the pastor and the governor, um, and then as time goes on, right, and the tribes get bigger and nations get bigger, then the roles of governor and, and um, pastor get handed out to, to be executed by certain people with certain skills. But that never the, – the base unit that most, most people get to participate in that's the normal thing that most most people get to participate in is to be a husband or a wife or a father or a mother and or a child right and that sense, everyone gets to be a child so that's the base unit of all society right the first relationship that someone has the second that they're born is that they have a father and a mother biologically speaking and 
that's that's the base unit of society is that family unit right that's what forms churches that's what forms societies is families and so we should encourage families right um i mean people intuitively know this like if we don't have families and if we don't raise up young people um to have the values that we have then we're risking a lot in the future so it's uh, sad when a whole nation decides not to value that anymore. And you can see the downfall that it might lead to. When they say that like, there's only about 12 families that control Memphis. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying I don't. No, I literally don't know about it. But what, they've, got, they've got a member of their family on every oh. in the banks. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say it would surprise me, but... Um, there you go. Okay. Um, that's probably getting a little far afield from Ezekiel. So let's uh, let's flip over to chapter 18 and end on a more optimistic note. Um, what verses did I have marked down here? 21 through 32. This is from Ezekiel chapter 18. But the wicked person turns from all the sins he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right. He will certainly live. He will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because of the righteousness he has practiced. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? But when a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, committing the same detestable acts that the wicked do, will he live? None of the righteous acts he did will be remembered. He will die because of the treachery he has engaged in and the sin he has committed. But you say the Lord's way isn't fair. Now listen, house of Israel. Is it that my way is unfair? Instead, isn't your ways that are unfair? When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and acts unjustly, he will die for this. He will die because of the injustice he has committed. But if a wicked person turns from his wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will preserve his life. He will certainly live because he thought it over and turned from all his transgressions he had committed. He will not die. But the house of Israel says the Lord's way isn't fair. Is it my ways that are unfair, house of Israel? Instead, isn't it your ways that are unfair? Therefore, house of Israel, I will judge each one of you according to his ways. This is the declaration of the Lord your God. Repent and turn from all your rebellious acts so that they will not become a sinful stumbling block to you. Throw off the transgressions that you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord. So repent and live. Okay, so this is a great passage. A couple things I want to just main points I want to point out here is that one, um, the Lord wants to save. He desires to save. Right? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
Right? He wants to save his people. And the point that goes along with that, what's needed for that salvation. Now, as Lutherans, this might make us a little uncomfortable because we're always talking about how it's the Lord who saves and we can't save ourselves, right? But what does the Lord constantly hammer here is part of what's needed for that is a true repentance, that the people must repent. And that means that they would turn from their wicked ways and turn toward the Lord and his righteousness and justice, right? And notice there that the reason the people have to repent is because if a person ends in being reprobate, if a person uh, ends up going to hell, right, if they're not saved, what does the Lord say that's because? It's because of their wickedness, right? They cry out to the Lord. They say, oh, Lord, you're, you're not fair to us. And he says, isn't it your ways that aren't fair? Right? It's their fault that they're wicked, right? And so they must repent. They must hear his law and repent. And then, finally, he says to them, and this is the key in the passage that makes sense of this, go get a new heart, right? With their current heart, they can't start doing what is right. They can't start acting justly. And where do we get this new heart, right? Where do we get this from? Well, that takes us back to chapters 11 and 36 and 37, which we talked about last week, where the Lord tells them, I will make you a new heart, right? I will wash you and make you clean. I will take your heart of stone out of you and give you a heart of flesh, right? And so it is the Lord who saves, right? But that doesn't mean that the people don't have to repent, right? The Lord comes with his free salvation, his free gift of a new heart and a new spirit, but if the people see, are convicted that they're sinners and don't repent, they are de facto rejecting that new heart. They're rejecting that gift, right? The Lord comes to us with a new heart, and if we say to him, that's okay, we want to stick with our old ways, right? That's rejecting him. Um, what was I going to say there? Oh, what I was going to say is there's there's no there's no middle ground, right? I think this is the sometimes the mistake is that um, someone either is so, someone somewhere between wicked and just, right? And it can seem I understand it can seem that way to us, right? In our lives we were Christians, right? I have no doubt that us in this room are faithful Christians, but that you know we all struggle with sin. Well, there's a difference between someone who's just and righteous and and struggles with sin in this flesh versus someone who is wicked and fully embraces their wickedness. Right? There's no middle ground. Right? You you you, you don't have um, this kind of halfway uh where well they're you know they're they're not that good they're not they, they haven't repented of their sins but you know 
they're still kind of a good person or something like that. Like the Lord doesn't care about that, right? What determines justice and wickedness is if they have a new heart and if they're repentant, right? That's what determines justice and wickedness. So um, anyway, that's time for today. Uh, So we got through, let's see here, 16 and 18. Okay, we got like three, four, four more passages to do. So um, we've been done about two a week. So we'll probably two more weeks. All right. Yeah, that's that's what Jesus warns about in in the book of Revelation, chapter two, is is that people can become lukewarm, right? And he says that's that's tantamount to being cold, right? Like you you you're either uh, you, gotta you gotta be one way or the other, right? There's no, there's really no in between. Yeah. All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all your gifts that you give us today in your Word and in your Sacrament. We pray that you would help us to ever learn from your Word that we may embrace it and and inwardly digest it, and that through the hope of everlasting life that we would know more and more about your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be with us today as we worship you, and we thank you for all the gifts that you bring us. We pray this to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.